You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I would love to uh, after the service. Uh, and man, this week was pretty great. I don't know if it was great for you, but like there were several afternoons when I was like walking to my car three o'clock in the afternoon, and it was like 85 degrees, and I was like, I can handle this. And then yesterday, it was brisk and cool. Uh, It's like the first hint that fall is coming. I know that fall is still a couple of months away, but October and November, they're just the best. Uh, And it will be seriously December and Christmas and cold really soon. And just to give you a heads up, uh, we'll get basically to the end of October, to get through this letter of Ephesians. Then we'll take four weeks in November with the very short book of Ruth, which I'm very excited about. Uh, And then we'll start the book of Luke in December for Advent. Uh, 2022 is a crazy year. This year, uh, Christmas Eve is a Saturday night, and then Christmas Day is Sunday. So we'll preach those classic Luke 2 Christmas passages on those two days in a row. Speaking of Christmas, how do you like this for a transition? Why do we give presents? Why do we give Christmas gifts to one another? Of course, we might, or we train our kids to say, because of the greatest gift of Christmas, Jesus, we give gifts to others, or something like that. And that's true. But then, depending on the person, there are lots of motivations we also have for giving gifts, not just on Christmas. There's, depending on the person, both the giver and the receiver, it can be a way to show thoughtfulness. Like, I really know you that well that only I could think to give you that gift or something like that. Or we know each other so well that we really need and want practical things. Sometimes some of us would just really rather have a gift card. Uh, And that's not a bad thing. Uh, With kids, certainly as Americans, we can overdo it with commercialization. But there's also a sense in which giving gifts as parents, there's a, it gives us joy to sacrifice a bit uh, so that kids will just know that we really love them and the things that we give them. The father in the parable of the prodigal son, uh, we could say wasted a lot of money at the end of that story. He could have potentially saved and better stewarded uh, things for the kingdom, but he is seemingly commended by Jesus for his lavish giving for his children. Gifts can be thoughtful. Gifts can be practical. Gifts can be an expression of love, and I'm sure there are other categories as well, but in Ephesians 4, Paul is going to explain that God the Father gives gifts to his children as well, and he gives these gifts to his family for reasons. So in one long run-on sentence, uh, Paul talks about gifts in everything that you just heard Glorianne read, which by the way, Glorianne, amazing. Like, I, I don't know if you could hear her uh, as we, yeah, in the back, in the balcony, you heard her. Uh, the Lord in his providence gave us Glorianne to read this week without a microphone. But uh, in the, everything that you just read, God gives gifts to his people with lots and lots. If you just scan the page in Ephesians 4, if you've got your Bibles open, there are lots of in order tos and so's and so that's and everything that you just heard Glorianne read. There is purpose in God's gifts to his children. God gives gifts to equip the church. And that equipping of the church is intended to mature the church. And that maturity of the church is for the reality that they might live in love 
love for God and love for one another. And what I just explained is actually how we're going to organize our thoughts tonight. Three parts, three headings, that God gives gifts for equipping and equipping for maturity and maturity for love. Gifts for equipping, equipping for maturity, and maturity for love. So first of all, gifts for equipping. Uh, Last week, in verses 1 through 6 of Ephesians 4, we were thinking about the unified body of Christ, and that because the body of Christ is already unified, we must then be eager to maintain that already unified unity. So much of Ephesians is about the unity of the body. Remember that God is bringing all things into unity with Christ. So, verse 7 actually marks a pretty stark change here when he begins to talk about individuals. There has been so many uh, y'alls in verses, in chapters 1 through 3 and a half, right? Uh, not, there should be y'all. Oh, we need that word, uh, the second person, person plural. But there are so many y'alls here. He's talking about all of you together. But here, verse 7, look what he says. But grace was given to each one of you, singular, each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Paul now has diversity in view here, and I don't necessarily mean diversity like it's come to culturally mean today, like ethnic diversity or diversity trainings, though certainly we have seen in Ephesians 2 and 3 how God has made a multi-ethnic people of Jew and Gentile into one body. But when I'm talking about diversity, I'm meaning this word that Paul uses, uses of each, each one. God is doing something differently with individual people. Think about the difference between like the jet setting on a hose nozzle and the shower setting. Uh, like universe is universal. That's like the jet setting. Die or different verse turning into separate parts. And the hose nozzle here is probably a good way to think about what God is doing because there is unity that is encompassing this diversity. So there is different streams going through this shower setting, but it's all coming from the same place and it's all under the same nozzle. And Paul says that with each stream coming out of the nozzle, God has given grace to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. Why is he gifting us? What is he gifting us? And for what purpose? Is it just for your salvation? Does God just give us the gift of salvation, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of adoption? Actually, no. Yes, he does, but why here? Why in Ephesians 4? Why does God give gifts to his people, to individual, each one of these people? In a couple of notoriously difficult verses about Jesus, like ascending and descending, uh, the conclusion seems to be that the gifts of Jesus, Christ's gift, is actually people. Did you hear what I just said? The gift that, that Jesus gives, the gift of Jesus, is actually people. He gives people, meaning the measure of God's grace given to individuals is that, that, that then he would then turn those individuals around and then give them back to the church. How so? Paul quotes here from Psalm 68, where in, in that context of Psalm 68, if you were to flip back to Psalm 68, God, Yahweh himself, is leading a triumphal procession up to the mountain of Zion, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. God himself is leading his people into this triumphal procession into the dwelling place of his settled presence. And so here, Paul understands Psalm 68, or he's thinking about Psalm 68, and he's not thinking, you know what? Uh, That kind of reminds me about Jesus. No, but he's saying that text, Psalm 68, is 
actually the triumphal procession of Jesus, that Yahweh in Jerusalem was the shadow. Jesus' exaltation above all things in heaven and earth is leading, he is leading his people into the heavenly places to seat them with him at the right hand of God. All of that is the substance. But Psalm 68 is also almost certainly playing on another place in the Bible. If Paul in Ephesians 4 is looking back at Psalm 68, the psalmist is looking back on Numbers 18, where God tells Israel this. He says, and behold, I have taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, given to the Lord to do the service of the tent of meeting. So there in Numbers 18.6, the priestly people of God are a gift to the Lord. The people give the Levites to God. But at the same time, then God turns the Levites around and he gives the Levites as a gift to the people that they might lead the people of God in the worship of God. So in his ascent, in Jesus' ascension, his triumphal procession in leading a whole host of captives to the place of God's presence, he, the sovereign ruler who fills all things, the one who fills the emptiness with his spirit and unites all things to himself, then just as Yahweh, God in the Old Testament, took and then gave the Levites back to the people as a gift the priest that would lead the people in worship. Now God does the same here. Jesus takes people as a gift and employs them right back around. Verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now throughout the years, some have interpreted this verse to mean that Jesus gave some people the gift of apostleship. And he gave to others the gift of prophecy, and to some the gift of evangelism, others the gift of shepherding and teaching. And this probably comes from the reading of the King James Version of the Bible, which says, and he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. But that's actually not what Paul is writing here in the original language, not to mention uh, the Psalm 68 quote about giving gifts to men. So people might read that about giving gifts to men, and then read that in the King James and think, oh, so some might receive the gift of apostleship, and some might get the gift of shepherding and teaching or whatever. Now, to catch you up on a bit of blogosphere and denominational controversy of the past couple years, Ephesians 4.11 is very, very often used uh, by otherwise conservative and complementarian churches who might affirm women pastors. That pastoring shepherding isn't actually an office, some might argue. That the office of elder or overseer, which is very likely, according to their understanding, reserved for only qualified men, nevertheless, shepherding is a gift that all people could receive. Like, oh man, we might say, that person really shepherded, shepherded me through a really difficult time. So that person has the gift of shepherding or something. That, really, that person might even have, we might say, pastored me through a difficult conversation. So many churches might have male elders, but then a female children's pastor or a female community outreach pastor or creative arts pastor or whatever pastor. Uh, but this is just reading Ephesians 4.11 just all wrong. The gifts are not spiritual gifts like other lists that Paul might describe in other letters where uh, he talks about a gift given to a person. 
Here, the gifts are the people. And the people's function, what they do, is actually inseparable from their office, of who they are. And so, we might have just, this is like a, a run-by rock throwing at a hornet's nest of <laughs> all of the difficult cultural and church life issues that I may have just brought up. Uh, we do hold that um, we have male-only elders and pastors here, uh, and if this is a difficult thing for you to think through, uh, can we meet and talk uh, sometime over coffee in the next couple of weeks? Or maybe listen to our first four sermons of 2019, the first four January sermons of that year, where we, we did a deep dive on men and women and the roles and offices of the church and all that. But back here to our first subject heading that God gifts for equipping in verse 11, he gave to the church apostles. They sent and deputized messengers of Jesus. He gave to the church the prophets, those who speak God's word. He gave to the church the evangelists, the, the good newsers who proclaim the kingdom of God. He gave the church the shepherds and the teachers. He gives them to the church for what? What does he give them to the church for? Verse 12, in order to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Just like the Levites, the priests of Israel, who were given to the people of Israel so that they all might live as one nation, the kingdom of priests, that they all might rightly worship God. Here in Ephesians 4, the leaders of the people are gifted to the people for what? To do the work of the ministry for them? to do the work and worship of God for them and on their behalf? No, to equip the people of God, equip them for the ministry of God's worship. And this falls right in line with Peter's 1 Peter 2 category of the, the priesthood of all believers, or that in 2 Corinthians 5, all of us, every one of us have been given a ministry of reconciliation, not just pastors, not just elders, and so our job as pastors is to say to you, follow me as I follow Christ. It is certainly not do as I say, but not as I do. But it is, church, do this. Here is what you are. Here is what we are to do as God's people. Do this. Do this. And what is the do this? Serve the people of God. Minister to the people of God. Disciple one another. Evangelize. Care for. Pray for. Love one another. The temptation has always been to make some like class separation, some like priestly class separation between clergy and the laity of the church trusting in the work of the pastor or the priest to just be awesome. And then to just like do awesome, you leader of the church. As long as that pastor or priest is doing awesome and being awesome, then I will benefit and I will be awesome. My life will be awesome. This is the same across theological and denominational lines from the Catholic Church of trusting in the work of individual priests to know and understand the Bible for me to we Protestant churches who basically think, can think the same way about our pastors. Just do the hard work for me. Or that we can, I think, implicitly or subconsciously believe and think that if you are really, really serious about Jesus, if you are really serious about the gospel, then you will go into the ministry. 
You'll become a pastor or a missionary. And then if you love God, we're thankful for the rest of you, but aren't quite as serious, then you can just go get a normal job, a secular job. But none of that thinking shows up in the New Testament anywhere. In fact, the opposite of that thinking is all over the New Testament. There is no class divide in the New Testament church between the people and its pastors. The pastors are actually part of the people in that I am a church member first and foremost before I am a pastor. I am just one of us. Paul's vision for the New Testament church is a group of diverse but unified believers that no matter from where they draw or get their paycheck from, they all walk in the Spirit in a manner worthy of the calling, with all humility and with all gentleness and patience united together in Christ and with one another, every single one of us. And to help all of this along, God then gives the church its leaders to equip them to do all of that. But shepherds and teachers aren't the only gifts to the church. This list here is not an exhaustive list, just like any of Paul's lists of like the fruit of the Spirit or gifts of the Spirit aren't exhaustive either. And so as Baptists, we actually do believe and emphasize the priesthood of all believers, that all of us are now priests in the kingdom of heaven, a kingdom of priests. We all have this ministry of reconciliation and that the authority of the church lies in the congregation, not in the pastor's that the elders are to lead the church in exercising the church's authority. And that every single member is actually a gift to the church. Every single member is a gift to the church. And that member, every single one of them, has been given work to serve the church and to work and keep the church. You have been gifted to the church by God so that you be a gift for the church, for God. But to what end? For what purpose? Why are we gifted to the church? Elders and teachers are gifted to equip the church so that the members can maybe just better read the Bible on their own? Is that what the equipping is for? So that you can read the Bible on your own? You don't need us to do it for you? We, you need the elders to equip the church to better pray on their own? that they can pray more or effectively share the gospel? Well, yes, all of those are true, but all of those are byproducts of a bigger category. People, individuals, are gifted to and for the church for a bigger reason that Paul has in mind here, and that is maturity. That God gifts for equipping, and then secondly, he equips for maturity. So secondly here, let me just start in verse 11 again. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And so God gifts to the people leaders who will equip them for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. This word building up is the same word that in the Greek Old Testament uh, in 2 Samuel 7, God tells David that instead of David building up a house for God, God is instead going to build a house for him. 
And he's going to build a house or an eternal throne and a kingdom. It's the same word that throughout Jeremiah, God promised to build a people for himself by putting his word into their mouths. It's the same word that Jesus himself, that Kyle already mentioned, Jesus himself says that I will build my church and the gates of Hades, the gates of death shall not prevail against it. And so what Paul has in mind here is that the son of David, the king, is building a house. He's building. He's doing work. The body of Christ, by putting his word in their mouths, which is a theme that Paul is just going to pound and pound and pound and pound for the rest of this letter. We're going to talk a lot about our speech and our, the way that we talk with one another over the next many weeks. But Jesus is building up his body, verse 13, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, this verse is seemingly full of contradictions. Last week, we saw Paul urge the Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 3, to maintain unity. But now he's saying that the unity of faith is something that we will only someday attain. Which is it? Are we to maintain something that we already have, or are we to strive forward to attain something that we don't have? Earlier, we saw that in according to the measure of Christ's gift, in verse 7, he gives grace as the sovereign ruler who fills all things. But here, Paul desires that we grow to maturity, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Which is it? Has Jesus already poured out and given us the full measure of his fullness? Or must we be, be first like become mature to receive his fullness? All of it, yes. Yes and yes, already but not yet. He has done this, but he has yet to do more. I've probably shared four to five times from this pulpit, uh, maybe the most helpful illustration that I know of to understand this already but not yet uh, reality of the new kingdom covenant of Christ, or the new covenant kingdom of Christ, but I'll share it again. Uh, when, might we say, did the allies, uh, the United States, England, France, Canada, all the allied forces of World War II, when did the allies win the European war of World War II? We could say that the war was won on May 8, 1945, when Germany offered their unconditional surrender. This is VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. That is when it was over. The war was won. And yet, we could also say that the war was actually won about a year earlier, on D-Day, June 6, 1944. As soon as that beachhead in Normandy was established and secured, it was inevitable. The American and British war machine was just too big for Germany to hold off forever. And so in that sense, the war was over on June 6, 1944. But there were many many, many terrible battles yet to come. Like, get in a time machine and go to, like, the Battle of the Bulge in December of 1944 and tell the men that were freezing and dying in winter foxholes that, hey, guys, the war's over. It's inevitable. Like, that's not going to help them that much in that moment as they are suffering, as they are freezing, as there is so much doubt and anxiety. They've got to fight today. Maybe it does give hope for the future, but there's still going to be loss in that moment. And yet, it was a done deal. The war was over. It was inevitable. And so in the same way, Paul is saying, maintain unity until you attain it. It's a done deal. 
grow into the maturity of the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, which has already been given to you. The whole thing has already been given to you. Now grow into that wholeness. It's done, but you've got to keep moving. Battle of the bulge moments today and tomorrow. Keep advancing every day through doubt and anxiety and stress and even suffering and loss until we attain the inevitable victory. Maintain until you attain. Grow into what you've already been given. Grow. Mature. What's the danger? What's the danger if the church is not growing into a fuller, deeper, more mature knowledge of Christ? Into the fullness, the stature of Christ. Without maturity, Paul gives a really interesting word picture here, but it's really good. Without maturity, what are we? Immature. We will be like naive, gullible children. There is a reason why we say it's like taking candy from a baby. Young people can just assume the best in people. But he says, do not be. Pursue maturity, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. These words of cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes, these are like the the traits of a con man, someone who, for all intents and purposes, appears to be trustworthy, appears to be reliable, someone who gathers or gets your confidence. This is what we, why we call someone a con man. They're a confidence man. They get your confidence. They seem to have your best interests in mind, but their only interest is to destroy you, to take you for everything that you have. So when we hear about con men stealing the, stealing the life savings of like little old ladies, we get angry about that. We get angry at both the wickedness of a person who would steal everything from someone who is in a place of vulnerability, but then also... We get angry like, oh, how could you be so vulnerable? How could you be so gullible, naive? How could you trust that scheme? We do it every day. We fall for the same schemes every single day. We fall for these lies every day. These words here that Paul uses should also be setting off like alarm bells in our minds. Anybody have any Old Testament alarm bells of cunning, crafty, deceitfulness? These are words to use, to use to describe the serpent in Genesis 3. The serpent is destru- described as crafty. Eve was deceived. So we as people not only fall victim to the crafty, minute-by-minute lies that God is, perhaps we believe, withholding good from us. That's a cunning lie. It's a deceitful lie. That God actually doesn't want us to be happy, but sad. A lie perhaps Eve believed and we did too. We do too. That God didn't actually or really say. So it's up to us to figure out what is right and wrong. That God does not actually see or care what we do or say. We believe those lies every day. And so Paul longs for us to grow out of this childlike naivete of Adam and Eve but he also longs for us to grow into maturity, into an awareness of what's going on in the world. Not so gullible, not cynical, but also understanding. Understanding that there are crafty ones out there, that not everyone has our best interest in mind, that there are some who want to steal 
and kill and destroy. There are all kinds of false teachings out there, just like flying around your social media feeds at 90 miles an hour. It's actually hard to keep up. It's really hard to keep up. It's often hard to know what is right and wrong. Often the most deceptive false teaching out there is grounded in what is right and what is true and what is good biblical doctrine, but then it just subtly twists. Twists so we don't even realize it's twisting and then we are now a mile away. So here's the thing. Uh, Five years from now, we want all of you to be more equipped for maturity in your knowledge of God, in your love of God. This is why we have book clubs and Bible studies. That's why we have core classes. We're beginning to rethink both short-term and long-term plans for those classes and just for life together as a church. Uh, just to let you guys know, uh, we just decided we're, we're, we're like reorganizing quite a bit with youth ministry. Youth ministry exists for what? Fun and games? Yes, but as a byproduct just of being together. Youth ministry exists for equipping, for maturity. We want, by the time our sixth graders graduate high school, to understand the deep things of God. And so, uh, just to let you know, uh, a week from tonight, if you have a youth kid, ages six, or grades 6 through 12, or you're a youth 6th to 12th grade student, or you're interested in serving in the youth ministry, after this service, a week from Sunday night, or a week from Sunday, next week, uh, we're just going to probably meet in the parlor for like a 10-minute town hall info meeting for some ideas that we've got and how we want to restructure a lot of those things. But all of that exists for equipping, for maturity, about thinking deeply about God. And one way that I want to personally, me personally, equip those who want it about reading and thinking deeply about God uh, is to read a book. Here it is, everybody. It's a thick one, Uh, but it's called The Wonderful Works of God. Uh, This is a recently re-released edition, republished edition of a 1909 book written by a Dutch guy named Herman Bovink. Uh, But within this book are chapters about topics like this, why we exist, who God is and how he reveals himself, the worship-causing depths of the triuneness of God, providence, sin, grace, covenant, the nature of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit, all of these things. Bavink wrote this book in 1909, and he said this, in the foreword of this book, he wrote this, when he's talking about distraction, in Holland in 1909, like when people may have still worn wooden shoes or something. He wrote this, he said, political, social, and philanthropic interests require more of our time and energy by the day. The reading of daily and weekly newspapers, magazines, brochures, Facebook feeds and Twitter feeds. I added that. They devour our every blink. There is a lack of desire and opportunity for the investigation of Scripture and the study of theological works. So Bavink was a seminary professor, but he wrote this book for church members, for people in the pews, for us. And so the deep things of God that Uh, I want to help us think through and read through slowly and to take all in. One person has said about Bavink, he says, you don't read Bavink, you drink Bavink. So I want us to drink some Bavink and drink the deep, wonderful works of God. So here's the plan. Uh, Many of you have expressed to me and to us of just wanting more. Uh, More Bible, more reading, more expectation. 
So the plan is this, uh, beginning in September, the last Thursday evening of every month, we're going to talk about two to three chapters of this book, about 50 pages or so, or, or so depending on how many of you sign up for this, likely in my backyard. Uh, and there will be buy-in. This book is about 40 bucks. But I think we all know that when you're like a student, if you've paid the tuition yourself rather than having someone else pay for it, you, you care a little bit more. Uh, so you've got to buy this book. And there will be homework. Don't bother showing up unless you've done the reading and done the pre-work. We're going to drink, drink the deep and wonderful works of God together. Uh, so we're going to get a sign up on the website this week and hopefully get that in the weekly email. And then we'll plan to meet the last Thursday of September. Uh, so let's think more deeply. Even if you don't do this, that's fine. We have core classes. Kyle called what I'm trying to do here a hardcore class. Uh, that's fine. It's, you don't have to sh- sign up for this. But whatever we're doing, whatever we are doing as the church, we must be growing, searching out the unsearchable mysteries of God, knowing the unknowable depths of God. Let's think deeply and to maturity, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children who are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. But what's all this for? What's the point of understanding the Bible more clearly, of understanding the person and work of Jesus more clearly, of reading and exploring the deep and wonderful works of God? Are we to become mature so that we can then become discerning jerks? Calling out every person online or in our churches or in our community groups who we have then personally deemed to be wrong, personally deemed to be dangerous. No. Now, it's true. Paul has lots to say about false teachers and false doctrine. But Paul's argument in Ephesians 4, 7 through 16, is that God gifts for equipping. He gives people to the church for the church's equipping. And then that the equipped church might grow into maturity, but then lastly, that the mature church might be a church of love. More and more love. So this last and third point, third point, maturity for love. So instead of being children, tossed to and fro by the waves of false doctrine, instead, verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, I've been debating uh, whether or not to share another illustration that, uh, that Kyle has given for this passage. The pro of using this illustration is that it is super helpful. The con of using this illustration is that it is super creepy. Uh, but I think the pros outweigh the cons here. Here it is. Here's the vision that, that your pastor Kyle has given to all of us. Uh, what Paul has in mind here is a fully mature strong, vibrant, grown-up adult head within a weak, immature, maybe even malnourished body attached to it. That's weird. But that, I think that's exactly what Paul is thinking about here. A grown-up head. The head of Christ. And then like a five- or six-year-old body. 
maybe even a malnourished child's body, on this head, the body of Christ, the church. That is creepy and weird, and I think that's why Paul is using this image. It is supposed to, like, that is weird. That is not right. Paul is saying, grow into the fullness of Christ, the maturity of him, the maturity of the head to which you are attached, to which you belong, to which you get your life from. The pastors and leaders are just part of the same body that we're all part of, and so all of us must grow into this maturity that we are all united to, together into him. Is it creepy? It's creepy, but it shouldn't be. That image is creepy because it shouldn't be. How does this happen? How how does the body grow into the maturity of the head? We've already seen that individuals, God gives individuals, in fact, he gives all of us to one another. And so, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Literally here, Paul doesn't use the word to speak. He just says, rather, truthing each other in love. That's a good verb, to truth. We are to truth one another in love. This verse often gets used in the context of confrontation, like when one of our members goes astray, it is then up to us to go and to speak the truth in love, to remind them of what is true, of what God has said, and all of that is so true. This is a wonderful place for us to draw conclusions about the how and the what of confrontation. And yet, it is not clear, in fact, I think it's pretty clear that confrontation here is actually not what Paul has in mind at all. It seems like he just has like the ordinary, everyday, boring conversations of truthing each other in love. That in our conversations over coffee, over phone calls, in the car rides that we have with one another around town, that whenever and wherever we are together, we remind each other that God is real. He actually exists. We remind each other that his word is true, that Jesus has lived and died for you and your sins have been forgiven if you have faith in him, that you've been raised to new life in him. We truth each other in love when we remind each other that, brother, sister, you are a new creation in Christ. We're united together and to him. This life is difficult, but it is purposeful. You have an eternal destiny. You exist for God. God does not exist for you, but you exist for him, and the gospel of our risen king is worth it. Just in the conversations that we're having with one another, not necessarily in confrontation or redirection, but in just speaking to one another's hearts and caring about one another in these ways, truthing each other in love so that we might actually, as a body, grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. This is the way that the body grows. We truth each other in love. Just in the conversations that we're having every single day, week by week, the body, as it is growing into maturity, into the measure of the stature of the full measure of Christ, then understanding, knowing, and experiencing the love of Christ, the supernatural, miraculous gift of experiencing the love of Christ, chapter three, then this body, the church, the very wisdom of God, chapter three, This body then grows up in love. Because of the love of Christ, it can then build itself up in the love of Christ. Just like a healthy body can do. Think about a healthy body. How it can actually help itself to recover and grow. It's one of the 
most amazing parts of the human body, that it doesn't actually need outside intervention to fix itself, but that it can actually repair itself. It's unbelievable. I could cut my skin right now, and then the skin would grow new skin within a few months or a few weeks even, repairing itself, building itself up. The same can be true of the church. It can grow in love, through love, and for love. Love of God, love of neighbor, passion for God, compassion for neighbor, serving the other members of the church, growing in maturity together, all for the sake of the love of God and love for each other. And all of this, the everyday life of the church living out its calling together, this is actually a calling, a vocation. Do you think of one of your vocations as a church member? Maybe not as an engineer or an athlete or a student. All of those are good and great and high callings as well. But one of the most important vocations that all of us have is that of a church member. Because in fact, perhaps one of, if not, one, if, if not the most important vocation that any of us have is that of a church member. The very wisdom of God is to establish and build the church. And then he employs us to do that work to build up the church. We sang earlier that I was glad when they said, I will go to the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord is the people of God that he is building up. He is building brick by brick into the fullness of Christ. And I am so glad to be part of you, to be just one member of the body as we are growing into the maturity of the fullness of our head, the Lord Jesus. Now again, like I mentioned last week, starting next Sunday, we're going to see how this love for one another can and should practically play out in the day-to-day of our lives. There's a whole lot coming. Second half of chapter four, all of chapter five, the whole rest of the book is just lots of really practical, pithy one-liners, and we're going to dig deeply for a while. But for now, let me leave you with some thoughts by a Scottish commentator named F.F. Bruce. When he wrote about Ephesians 4, he said this. Hang with me here. The glorified Christ provides the standard at which his people are to aim. The risen Lord Jesus, who is sitting exalted on the throne, is the standard by which we are to aim. The corporate Christ, the body of Christ, cannot be content to fall short of the perfection of the personal Christ. Are we saved by grace through faith, not not according to our works, so that no one may boast? Yes, full stop and amen but we must not fall short of the perfection of the personal Christ. When the goal is ultimately reached and the body of Christ has grown up sufficiently to match the head himself, then will be seen that full-grown man which is Christ together with his members. The spectacle will not fully appear until the day when they are glorified together with him, but the expectation of that day will act as a powerful incentive to spiritual development, to spiritual maturity in the present time. It will be a spectacle, a revealed glorious spectacle of the bride of Christ, glorious in splendor and in holiness, now matching the glory and splendor of the Lord Jesus, our our bridegroom. And yet we are not there yet, already but not yet. VE Day is coming, but today is often cold and freezing and explosions are going off all around, and yet we are His and the battle is won. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. It is inevitable. It is done. 
And yet, even so, we pray, come Lord Jesus and make it also. Let's pray to that end now. Our glorious and triune God, we do long for the day. God the Father, when you reveal the glorious majesty of your Son to the entire cosmos, and that when you, Holy Spirit, will finally and fully bind us, unencumbered, unseparated by anything, by the presence of sin, by the power of sin, by any of it, when you unite us finally and fully to the Lord Jesus, help us to that end today. Help us to grow to that end today. Help us to mature as a church, that we would not be so easily conned by the lies of this world. And just the subtle everyday lies that we believe in sinfulness, that we are, uh, that we are tricked into believing in our own flesh, but even that false teaching around us that, shows, that teaches us and tries to persuade us that the gospel is not worth it, that Jesus is not good, he is not king, that you have not spoken. Help us to grow. Help us to build one another up in love truthing one another in love of the reality of your love for us in Jesus. Help us to grow. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.